We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. There's a philosophical conundrum at the root of all of this. Morality requires we maintain a safety net at the bottom that catches everyone. Alternative is simply inhumane. But we also need an aspirational target at the top so as to inspire us to excellence, creativity, and accomplishment. In other words, we need worth to come for free, and we need worth to also be acquirable. And no philosopher, not Kant, not Nietzsche, Aristotle, has yet figured out how to construct a moral theory that allows us to say both of those things. You have a good uh, good trip? Yeah, I think all things considered. Um, first time away from the kids in nine months, which was good. Missed them already, so we were back. And in London and Paris? London and Paris, yeah. Was that your first time in Paris since we had hung out there like four yeah, years ago? Since <laughs> since the pandemic. Cool. Well, the big news of the of the week. Well, there's a few things, but one is the um, Supreme Court ruling uh, around uh, affirmative action. So let's um let let's get into that. What what is sort of your your assessment of uh, of what happened slash um, any immediate reactions to it? Yeah, so I'm going to make an assumption that our our listeners are extremely bright and and already have stayed up on the news. But I think at a high level, it's it's I think two cases that kind of got brought together: one against Harvard and one against UNC, um, saying that uh, the affirmative action, which uh, if you use our our British friends call it positive discrimination, which is, I think, a better term. Uh, and we, we should talk about kind of the euphemism of affirmative action in terms of like how that perceived public perception. There's actually an interesting story about this guy. I think he's a, I want to say like a retired financial advisor. And all he did was wake up every day and look around the country for potential cases to go after affirmative action for, I don't know, some crazy number of years. And um, I actually don't even know if he was involved. So there's a case, um, I think in the early 2000s, I want to say like 2003, where court was different makeup then. And and they basically ruled saying that affirmative action should exist for about 25 more years, right? I think affirmative action first came into place sometime in the 70s. Uh, I think it's funny. There are a lot of people who assume that it was is kind of part of the Civil Rights Act and it very much was not. They they swore that it would it would never be part of this like 
at the civil rights, people were saying, oh, well, you have something like affirmative action. They're like, no, that, that will not be part of. Yeah. And I think um, for those who kind of want to get like a full detail on a lot of this, uh, some of the influences here, uh, one, you should go read Coleman Hughes's piece on this. Uh, Coleman is fantastic. And he did kind of a 10 point essay on kind of how to think about this decision. And I think he, he does a good job covering that. I think he brings up the point that Kennedy was the first one to kind of do an executive order, but that was specifically in an era when minorities just weren't hired. So it was kind of a directive to say, hey, make an effort to, to, to try to hire other people. And then it sort of got codified after, um, I want to say the, the case involved California. It was like a med school case and, and, and that kind of turned into affirmative action, which also worth noting, we have not had, California has not had uh, affirmative action at UCs since 1998. So we should talk about that in a second. But going back to the case, the violation is the 14th Amendment. And so uh, passed after the Civil War and, and basically equal protection clause, I think is what it's called, but more or less like uh, discrimination based on race is illegal. Like that's existed in the Constitution since the you know 1800s. And so this is kind of a perversion of of the Constitution and an, an interpretation that discrimination, if it's for good purposes, is okay. And we finally kind of come all the way back to saying, no, that's not what the Constitution says. It specifically says that, you know, race-based discrimination is illegal. It's against the Constitution. So you can't even go past a federal law for this. You, you can't use this for, for university admissions. And so, and so that finally has, and it was a kind of down the line vote, 6-3. Kind of interesting, the Clarence Thomas dissent, I think is worth reading. And if you want the, the complete opposite version of that, go read Justice De Jackson. So the, the two uh, African-American members of the court um, are, are the, uh, the ones who kind of wrote the, the opinions. And so worth reading both, just to kind of get a sense for the arguments. Clarence Thomas is huge white supremacist, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty classic where if you are a minority and you share the opinions of the establishment, then your, your opinions are not only good, but like put up on a pedestal because now you kind of have the armor of being the minority. But as soon as you're a minority that shares a, uh, call it heterodox opinion, uh, you're, you're dismissed or people don't even refer to you. And, and the second person actually, I think who's, who's written, a ton on affirmative actions, a ton of content on YouTube, and highly, highly recommend uh, is Thomas Sowell, right? So uh, another uh, African-American academic, uh, self-identified early in his life as a socialist slash communist who, who kind of saw the light uh, at the University of Chicago and has spent a lot of time um, talking about this for, for you know, 50 years. I mean, I think he's in, he's still alive. I think he's in his 90s, a variety of books, plenty of interesting interviews. And what's interesting about Thomas Sowell is he's actually done a lot of um, comparative international studies on the topics that he talks about. And a lot of the criticism was, oh, well, you're just kind of selectively choosing things to make your argument in the U.S. And like, you don't understand what it's like to be black, although he grew up in Harlem in a broken household and, and specifically talks about what it's like to be like that. But he, he actually talks about India and Malaysia and other countries where there are kind of minorities and, and kind of see how it plays out. Um, that's actually where I got the term uh, positive discrimination, which is, is used in, in, in the UK. I think it's a huge victory for just kind of people who want to work hard in life and, and see their outcomes succeed. Like right now, today in the US, if you're an Asian American, you have been discriminated against for the last 50 years. 
in a way that the only other group I can think of that I'm aware of that is on a kind of pure, just ability to actually get the scores that we say. And, and I hate the term meritocracy because for those who don't know, meritocracy was used originally as a, a satirical device, which then similar to political correctness quickly got adopted by the establishment as something that we should strive for. But but to, to kind of use it in the more broad sense of saying, based on your kind of individual achievements, the things that you do, when we say, you know, if, if we explicitly say that education is about um, did you do the hard work to get good scores or good output on on the work that you do, right? That's how you want to be judged, not necessarily on all of these kind of preconceived notions based on your skin color or, or kind of like ethnic origin. So I, I think if you, if you just take Asian Americans, they've had this, this uh, the, the only other group that this has happened to is Jews, right? So there's a, there's a great, and I hesitate to say this with Malcolm Gladwell, but there's a great Malcolm Gladwell piece in the New Yorker uh, about the history of discrimination at the Ivy League for Jewish people. And, and you know, for the first half of the 20th century, all of these policies that got put in place was to prevent the, uh, you know, Jewification of, of these elite universities because, you know, the, the, the establishment, WASP establishment, did not want the kind of unwashed immigrant Jewish masses to, to kind of penetrate their universities. And, and they were, when it was strictly based on kind of like some type of test score, they were doing really well. So they kind of put all these like fake things to allow them to selectively decide who, who they wanted the universities, which then affirmative action kind of folded in nicely with those, with those programs. Right. And, and we should talk about legacies. We should talk about athletic admissions. I think both of them are BS for, for the, the stated preference of, of what these universities are supposed to stand for. Um, but yeah, like I, I think this is a huge win for kind of just moving people down to kind of an equal playing field around like, what are you able to achieve? And now obviously not everyone starts at the same place, but in terms of like how you're judged at key points in your life should be far more based on your ability, not, not kind of whatever racial quota that they claim not to be a racial quota. And this has been boiling over for quite a while. I, I believe if you're, if you're Asian, um, you have to get like several hundred points better on the SAT than a, than a Hispanic or, 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 or black person to get into the same spot. And, you know, we, we saw this um, flare up in New York City uh, schools, um, uh, Stuyvesant, right? Um, Asians were, were doing, you know, well, they were well overrepresented relative to their sort of population size because they were performing way better on tests. And, you know, people often like to make it think that it's a access thing. Hey, it's, it's rich white people who are getting in. We'll get into legacies in a, in a second. But th these were poor Asian kids uh, or, uh, you know, often um, immigrants or people or, you know, first generation people who worked so hard to get into to Stuyvesant um, and, and yet couldn't get in. So this uh, this affirmative action has been this has been boiling up for, for, for a long time now. And, and when it's when it's poor, uh, you know, brown people of a different you know, stripe, uh, Asian people, it's it's hard to ignore the injustice, although there is and there was a lot of pressure within Indian and Asian communities to just say, hey, it's not about you. <laughs> like, yeah, don't worry about your kid getting into Harvard. There are enough Asian people getting into Harvard. Like we need to be more socially conscious. And I always find that kind of fascinating how um, that kind of morality could could spread within a group that is getting you know, system, systemically uh, prejudiced uh, or discriminated against? Well, I, I think it's, it's utter horseshit. And I think the, look, we're, we're talking to a, a half Cuban American, so I'm, I'm the wrong type of Latino, but like I probably got my, the, the, the tip both for 
for getting into Duke. And then I've worked at Bain and both places, I'm sure, took that into account in terms of uh, some factor. Fortunately, I kind of didn't go through life worrying about like, did that tip me in or not? I, I feel pretty confident in my ability to hang with anyone. I did, did okay at school. I did okay in the professional workforce. And I don't think it was because of, of kind of some affirmative action component, but it sucks that like even anyone could even joke about that. I'm like, oh, you're there. Now you're half uh, Latino, but Jewish. So I think that kind of negates it out. So you, you got no advantage <laughs> in life, Eric. Um, but, I, but I think like if, if, you know, joking aside, if we, if we go to kind of what happens to Asian Americans, is it's absolutely crazy, right? So I think there are a couple of interesting things. One, there's like a 2004 leaked, I don't even know if this came out in discovery because obviously for Harvard to be sued, all this stuff kind of had to get unearthed and, and kind of brought the, the, the judicial system shines a light on it. I think there was an estimate that if they, they let the, the kind of admissions float just to be purely based on, on, you know, academic achievement and, and what, what is essentially what should be an educational institution, the, the primary thing we're focused on, 40% of the undergraduate body at Harvard would be Asian. So I think that's like two X of, of where they are. Right. Um, and Asians not being more than what, uh, 10 or 15% of the overall U.S. population. So an extraordinary achievement for an immigrant group of people in the United States, none of whom are, you know, most of them are first generation, maybe some second generation at this point. But like we're talking about a very recent group of people, you know, Indian Americans are the highest earning immigrant group in the U.S. by a lot, like significantly, like one of the few that are over $100,000 on average. That's amazing. Like that's a group of people coming to this country and just phenomenally succeeding. By the way, with a skin color that would be normally called black or brown, but oh, because you're doing so well, we're gonna we're gonna say that somehow um, the average American who's racist against people based on their skin color somehow distinguished between Indians because even with the you know a lot of people having an accent, somehow they, they just like magically don't get that same. Well, don't get us started against about Nigerians. Right. So it, it's it's <laughs> it's logically incoherent because like what they're trying to say is you get a you kind of fall you, you're starting from a behind place. Yeah, you are. And, and there are groups of people in this country that that succeed despite that, right? And then and it's you start to touch a bunch of temples that I don't even want to get into in this, this conversation. But it's like, why is it that Indian Americans uh, are are so successful? You know, it's not like I don't think most of them are coming from these super wealthy families in India. Yeah, there's probably some of them, but the average person is coming. They're immigrants, and they put a huge emphasis on education at home and and on hard work. Same thing for for Chinese Americans, right? And I think it is just, it's, it's always blown my mind in terms of like how someone can say, oh, well, Asians are minorities when convenient, right? Like if you're trying to make an argument against white people, boom, like stop Asian hate, like let's throw that in. Like, uh, you know, when people were freaking out about biology on, on COVID and, and no handshakes, please, you're xenophobic. Like, are you, you hating against Asian people? So, so they're a minority when you can use them for your, your politically advantageous argument. But then when you actually say, okay, where the whole goal of affirmative action is to help minorities. Well, you, you've actually been discriminating against a minority strictly based on on their culture of hard work and achievement, not for, for any other reason. And that's one of the big takeaways from Saul's work for me is just a comparative study of cultures. Like wh one thing Saul never does, I, I believe, is he never gets into the biology. He, he just makes the cultural arguments to talk about the differences between groups. And it, it kind of makes sense um, intuitively like there's in the same way that no company would ever perform the exact same because they're different groups of people with different different norms and you don't expect them to perform the exact same 
like we don't expect Russians and French people and Italians to be like exact equal across dimensions. Like people are different. Gr groups are different. Groups have different different norms, behaviors, different in different different environments. So one is just even expecting difference as opposed to having this idea of equity that everyone's supposed to perform the same. And if they don't, it's because of uh, prejudice out, outside of their outside of their control. Right. And it's a moving target, sleight of hand, right? So it first starts with skin color. And then if you start to bring up anything around like, well, there are plenty of immigrant groups that have different skin color that seem to do well, then it's, it's oh, well, this group was because it's this specific skin color or because of slavery. Because if you actually look, think about it, like Barack Obama, uh, Kamala Harris, both not descendants of, of America's slave, right? ADOS is, I think, the, the terminology. They're both immigrant groups. I think uh, Kamala's Jamaican uh, father and then uh, Barack Obama's a Kenyan father. So, hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Like, basically, it's, you can't pin them down because they just they just change their argument. And, and so ultimately, you, they, they conflate two things. So one, there's a, there are plenty of people in society that start from way behind the starting line, right? just how the capitalist American system works. I am extremely sympathetic to figuring out how can we actually, at the earliest age possible, advantage people who start from, from behind that line, right? Because a kid doesn't get to choose who, who, what family they're born into, what their circumstances are. And so everything we can do as society to actually improve the kind of early childhood experience for people so that they can actually get on a trajectory the same way, all for it, right? And I think we can get into a long argument of like, what's the best way to do that? Uh, speaking of Thomas Sowell, I think he wrote this one on his 90th birthday or something a couple of years ago, he wrote a Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed about the charter school system in New York and specifically talks about how, you know, you have all these, these uh, progressives who kind of need to uh, basically treat uh, specifically black and Hispanic students with kind of kid gloves and they need special environments and all this stuff. If you actually just look at the data of this set of charter schools, I forget the name uh, of the, the program in New York State, these kids did as well as any kids in any top set of schools in, in the country for their period. Super rigorous education, no teachers unions. Like it was actually just like you, you, you treated school kind of like the military in terms of like how, how serious it was taken. So you took kids who traditionally weren't in those, those environments, right, whether it's the public school, maybe the same thing at home and put them into an environment that was like to, to, to simulate what it is actually to be in a really rigorous environment, they achieved just as great. So go, to go back to your biology point, that went out the window. But who, who, who tried to get rid of it? The, the Democrats in New York, because they're in bed with the teachers unions, because the teachers unions don't want any competition, right? They want to have the, the rubber room where if a teacher does something bad, you can't fire them because they have tenure. So they go to work every day and they just twiddle their thumbs or, or watch YouTube. And so I think like there are so many conflated problems here, right? Like we can't just talk about affirmative action without like kind of going all the way back. The one, the one I want to talk about though, so California, and, and you can go see the studies yourself. Thomas Sowell talks about this, gets rid of it in 1998. That, that's a state level uh, Supreme Court ruling, right? So even if the libs in California want to pass it, it's like, nope, the, 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 they'd have to go kind of overturn that. So you've had 25 years of, of no... Uh, affirmative action in California. Now there's probably some backdoor ways that they've been trying to do this, but, but here, here are the stats. I think it goes, you had a significant decline in uh, black and Hispanic students at the flagship campuses in UCs. So Berkeley and, and UCLA, right? The ones that are kind of like most equivalent to an IV and, and the, the highest prestige. 
However, you actually made up a lot of that enrollment across the UC system into other UCs, right? Like there were plenty of other uh, good UCs available. The second thing that was interesting is the graduation rate of Black and Hispanic students increased. So what, what you ended up having happen is you, you move students based to where their academic qualifications kind of put them, right? So they're still going to college and they're still going and getting a four-year degree, yet rather than kind of superficially giving a bump to students who may not have been qualified, going back to that kind of like, I think there's this chart that's floating around on Twitter. It's like in Asian at Harvard, like the, the out of a decile. So like 10 out of 10 on the decile, you have a 12% chance of 12.5% chance of getting into Harvard. Whereas for uh, you know Black or Hispanic, it was something like the 40th percentile of the same thing. Right. So it's just completely crazy in terms of like the adjustment that the schools were doing from an academic standpoint. But if you actually look at the data, this is the UCs. And then I think MIT has had some studies around this. Graduation rates for, for Black and Hispanic students are lower than the, the kind of equivalent white or Asian students because the, the students that are getting the bump are probably not qualified for those top end schools. Now you can make the argument, well, just by virtue of being there, they're going to get the network and whatever. That's, that's BS. If you go to one of these top schools and you have a 2.5 GPA, sorry, you're not getting a job at Goldman Sachs. Like the, the only people who are benefiting from, from that is the fact that you're showing up and you're actually helping the curve for the students who are already there, right? You take a big, big econ class or a big science class, they're going to grade that essay, like that, that, that test on a curve. And so I, it's actually something that's interesting is Duke, which was where I went in 2012. So this is like my era of Duke. There was a study that actually looked at freshman students who are coming in from, you know, black and Latino students coming in, especially uh, males. 55% of them who had opted to do a, a, like a hard science. So, so, you know, you kind of hear all this stuff. Hey, you should major in STEM, right? Um, to, to go to med school or something like that. 55% of them switched to an easier major, right? And, and so it's just crazy. Whereas the UCs where you had this adjustment based on academic, right? So there was a, there was a moderate decline in the, in the kind of Berkeley's and UCLA's, but overall evened out. You had it like some crazy, it's a 50% increase in STEM graduates for black and Hispanic students. And so it's it just like, this is back to the discussion we had about mood affiliation. And, and what my view is like, what's the difference between right and left most of the time? Left really cares about inputs, like kind of like the virtue signal, the like how, how it looks, whereas the right usually cares about outputs. And the reality is the University of California system that got rid of this 25 years ago has improved graduation rates and increased STEM graduates. Just to, go, yeah, to, to explain more, I guess, the, the case against affirmative action, it's this, even for the people for whom it's putatively trying to help, it's this idea that the, the person who gets into Harvard, who should have went to Duke or Michigan, you know, or the person who went to get gets into Duke or Michigan, who should have gotten to, you know, um, some, you know, Michigan State or whatever, um, there's then this, they're not prepared for that, they're not ready for it. And so there's this mismatch across the stack, where the, the affirmative action person um, who, who got in because of affirmative action is, is the bottom quartile of performers. They're more likely to get demoralized, more likely to drop out. And so they would be better off probably going to a school that matched their capabilities where they could thrive. And Antonio's not here, but like, let me, let me kind of like play his, his version because he, he tweeted this yesterday and, you know, he's, he's talked about how being salty about this. But basically going to those elite schools, there is a component where it's, it is actually doesn't matter what you major in. And it's, it's kind of like you, you've gotten this stamp, right? It's like, oh, you went to some level of school. 
I, I can see part of that, but I actually think it, it really, again, it, it's a distribution. So if you're in the kind of like top end of the distribution, the, the majority of that value definitely accrues to, right? Like, so if you're finishing towards the top of the class, you get all these additional boosts that you're going to have going into the rest of your career. If you finish in the middle of the pack, okay, maybe. But if you finish at the bottom of the pack, I, 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 yeah, you might know these people, but what they're going to remember is, is like, yeah, you had the lower GPA or you weren't as, you weren't as talented. And so it, cre- it creates racial resentment. Like it, it, it creates this perception that you don't deserve to be here. And, and, who, and who, who wants to feel that way? It also creates racial resentment because someone didn't get in and now they're like, oh shit, I didn't get into this because, you know, someone of a different, you know, a minority got, got in. And so it, it just creates this, um, you know, resentment where maybe it wouldn't have existed prior. I mean, one thing I've wondered is why isn't affirmative action based on income? Well, well, this is this is the like super logical thing I think you can actually make an argument for is why not make it class based? Like that's actually like socioeconomic. And, and you're already starting to see some of this bubble up, but like that seems much more fair, right? So if I'm a poor black kid or I'm a poor white kid or I'm a poor Latino, let's do that. Like let's, let's give them a boost in terms of, you know, some adjustment for, yeah, you have a single parent or like, you, you know, and so you've had to go through some level of adversity. But I think what what's challenging about that is if you actually make it like that, then there are a bunch of other people who aren't in the kind of like special groups in terms of mood affiliation um, that you you you're now forced if, if you actually kind of make that a fair process within that definition. Right. There are plenty of poor people in Mississippi and West Virginia who, who achieve beyond beyond their kind of station in life or, or would need that boost. And the, the sad part is that the person who got in who actually didn't need the help now gets the stigma of, of, oh, they, they couldn't have gotten on their own when they did, or they could have. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, there's a part of me that I always wonder, it's like, if I'm not half Latino and then someone, oh, you should just argue, like check, check the box that you're white and just like hide your identity or whatever. I I don't know if that's the optimal game theory when you're trying to get into highly competitive schools, but let's just play that out. Like what what would have been the the top end for me? Like my, my, my high school, you know, SATs and I finished, you know, fifth of my class or whatever. So I, I did okay. But I think, um, there's always a little thing in the back of my mind. It's like, okay, what is the what is the market clearing price for me rather than like, oh, like what was this, the special boost that I got there? But like, let's also talk about legacies and, and athletic stuff. So with legacies, I mean, legacies is just stupid. Like, it's just like, okay, so basically we've, we've said that America doesn't have class titles, but if your parents both went to Harvard or wherever, then now you get a boost to get in. And I think it's something crazy. It's like 33% of people go to these schools, it's because their parents go there. Same thing for athletics. What does the Harvard rowing team have an impact on your ability to study physics? <laughs> Nothing. Are, are you, are you, you have a richer experience because there's some kid who's there who's clearly not as, as qualified, right? But in terms of they're, they're extremely talented from an athletic perspective. So you, you have some interaction with them. You're just like, they actually make you feel bad because you're not as fit as them. Like, I, like I, I, I still don't kind of understand that. And so we, we have this and it turns out it's like both of those arguments fundamentally come down to money, right? So it's like, how do you, how do these universities continue to grow their endowments? They, they have to get donations. What do boosters want? They want to make sure their kids get in. So that's the legacy thing. And then... This, I think, is going to change, though, because I think that the prior era in the 20th century, when the colleges were much more male and, and you know, less female friendly and, and the college sports were a smaller business, 
there's kind of this, oh, like, you know, my alma mater and, and you know, I might have been on the football team or, you know, I, I have an affinity for that. It's, it's a farce now, though, because any of the big schools and, and Duke is a good example of like, I think, a decent academic school and, and, and has like a basketball team that's a professional basketball team. <laughs> with, with this image and likeness stuff that basically the, the, the Supreme Court has said, like, no, you, you can't have like a modern version of slavery where these kids play for free. Right. Some make it to the pros. Most don't. They have to spend a full time job like a professional athlete, like playing. It's not like they're they're getting plenty of time to experience college. Like I saw the kids at the D1 level like they, they had a, like it was like they had barely any time to study because they were constantly doing all this sports stuff. And so like and then the, the university makes money off of them so they can pay what like a white old guy who's a coach like it's just stupid. And so so the Supreme Court actually got rid of that and now said like all these players can you know, take endorsements or whatever. And so basically what we've, we, we're calling for what it is, it's, it's, it's quasi uh, professional sports. That's still the majority of the revenue. There's no collective bargaining agreement, which I think at some point that may change. But like in the NBA, at least the players get like 50% of all the money that the NBA makes, like the, the athletes in college don't, right? And, and college football is a huge business, right? Like, and you know, it's a big business because you have schools in, on the West Coast, joining the the kind of like middle of the country division, I think it's like what the Pac-10 has like USC and UCLA now or something like that. And it's like, oh, because th- those are in the neighborhood. No, it's just because there's a television contract and they all make a ton of money from it. So it's it's purely money focused. And so I think it's like it's, it's lost the student athlete vibe. Like you want to see student athlete vibe, NESCAC, right? Like, you know, all these small liberal arts schools, there's no scholarship, there's no money associated with it. They ride buses everywhere. Like, that's basically what college athletics should be. And at that point, like, you should still have some level of, like, academic qualification rather than getting this, like, kind of boost for that. I think the legacy stuff is just is just stupid. Now, what's interesting is you now have a generation of, of you know, Indian American, Chinese American, because that's significantly increased in enrollments, who are now going to have kids starting to come of age and they're going to want their kids to go there. So there may be some ability to kind of like actually make legacies a little bit more diverse. But I think I think it's a stupid policy in the sense that um, you you shouldn't be advantaged to go to one of these institutions, especially if it's taking federal money. And so that's the long story here of like basically the way to, to for Harvard to solve this. They have a 50 billion dollar endowment. Just stop taking federal money. Like the, whatever they're getting is, you know, even if it's a hundred million dollars a year across the board, they can afford that, right? You have a ten, five percent uh, on on fifty billion. If that's what you're you're spending per year, is two point five billion. Fire a few administrators. Like get to a point where you don't have to take federal money. You know, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of Harvard, but at that point, I don't care because you, you're not taking any public funding. And and that's actually the ruling, by the way, is if you have federal funding that you can't do that. Whereas if you're a private institution you're free to kind of do exactly what you want. And so I I suspect that will be where some of these really elite with massive endowments head is then they can just kind of be private institutions and it's kind of like Augusta National. It's like no one can dictate how Augusta National is this membership. It's just like, sorry, it's private. Yeah. Why are you not a fan of Harvard? Uh, I mean, I don't think we have enough time on this podcast for it. Uh, first of all, they didn't let me in, right? If I was there, then I would be, I would be supporting it. But, but I, I think like fundamentally the... They're a symbol. It's like the New York Times. Yeah, it's a symbol like the New York Times. And it's it's the establishment, it's it's experts, it's all all of the things that I think are kind of like wrong with the overall media environment in our country. Sort of appeal to authority, like Yeah. I mean, here here's a really basic example. What percentage of the like Fortune five hundred CEOs went to an Ivy League school for undergrad? Probably pretty high. 
No, extremely oh. low. It's oh, it's mostly state schools. Huh. And so what you get are people who go work for these companies in Cincinnati, in you know Fayetteville, Bentonville, whatever Walmart is. They work their way up through the chain. Maybe they go to Harvard Business School. But but the but the idea is that like the types of people who go to Harvard, they only want to take professional managerial class jobs. So it's like not even like the the people who go to these schools at this point are actually kind of going out and building the like foundational stuff within America. Some of that happens actually in Silicon Valley. But I would say that the 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 top tier state education system in America, which there are a lot of red states, um, I think is actually far more uh, kind of ingrained with actually like what is building the rest of the country. But what's crazy about the Ivy Leagues is that professional managerial class has such a like a stranglehold on on kind of government, on media, on education, right? And so it really sets the agenda. So I, I think it's just it is a mismatch for like we have plenty of other people in society who are not part of that kind of elite capture. And you're talking to someone who went to what I think is an elite school. So I, I, I kind of look back on this as a little bit of like disdain. And but just to confirm, would you be okay with it if you thought that those experts were just way better at their jobs? I, if, if they were, in fact, the most competent people, and they were coordinating across, um, you know, academia, government, media, etc. I'm just skeptical that any academic, like full time academic is going to be like, I, I believe in people who do practice. Now, like hardcore research, I could be convinced otherwise, but like, I don't know, like who, who is the best writer in the country? Someone who's teaching writing at Harvard? No, it's it's probably, I don't know, Stephen King or Barbara Kingsolver, like one of these people who like is actually out there writing. So my, my, my general view is like people who are in their respective field are doing the best work. Now you can make an argument that a historian, but like, I don't know if, um, you know, a better history of the, you know, the Bourbon Kings of France is like particularly relevant for uh, policy setting. And and because they are sort of government funded, government subsidized, they just have removed sort of all forms of uh, kind of accountability or like, uh, you know, cop, you know, market accountability. No, I, I let me separate those points. I actually think mostly Harvard has there's no real influence. Harvard influences the government, not the other way around. I think it's more like they are unwilling to stop taking federal money. So you take stop taking federal money. I don't I don't I don't care what you do like that. It's like I believe in freedom. So but the moment you start taking money from the federal government, then I have an opinion because I pay taxes. So like that that's like my, my my general view is like I, I could care less once people aren't taking. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I believe if, if we get rid of affirmative action, we should also get rid of legacies and athletes, which I think is just another form of affirmative action. At the same time, I also- To, to be fair, I think college athletics should exist, but it should be like when you go to high school. It's like you go to the high school and then you try out for the team, right? So it should be amateur, not not this like quasi, you know, and, and I think with, with the Ivies and, you know, some of these other sports that don't necessarily have the TV deals, it's about getting people into the Olympics, right? And, and it creates kind of this aura of, you know, Stanford does this thing where they have- all of these other sports and they win this trophy every year for the D1. I think it's called the president's cup or something where it's just, they have the, the single best performance, but it's like all these, like it's like water polo and all these other kind of sports, which people should go play those sports. I just don't think it should be funded at the level that the college athletics are, are funded at. Zooming up one layer. I mean, some people believe that this ruling isn't going to have much impact, um, that it's, it's mostly symbolic. It's a moral victory. But you already saw Biden and Kamala come out with something 
basically kind of redefining from diversity to adversity, like that, that they can, you know, take out race into account on an individual basis when thinking about how it's informed, um, you know, how hard someone's life has been and, and that they should take that into account when taking in students. And you already see, um, you know, employers skirt the law on this um, when they say, yeah, it's, it's not, we're not trying to fill a quota, but we do have targets or goals or, you know, um, values here. And so, do you think this is really going to change things? Like even in, in California, like are the demographics of the universities representative, like are Asians filling up 40 or 50% or whatever they should be filling up based on their, on their scores or are they getting penalized for bad? So, I mean, I think like the enrollment, Asian American enrollment at um, UC Berkeley is like 40%. So it, it worked in California and you would think in the last 25 years, they would have figured out a backdoor way into doing it. So maybe now that it's national, you get a little bit more, but I think the Roberts, the Roberts, put in his uh, opinion that he specifically said, if you try to do a backdoor way and we're going to, we're going to rule against it. Obviously that will take time. But I, I, I think, I think what's important is it will prevent new dumb laws. So California, for example, now that this, this is set, all of these stupid things around the, the diverse makeup of boards and, and kind of like all, all the like in codified from a law standpoint, DEI stuff will, will will get sued out of existence. I think it'll it'll basically go back to this this idea of like, okay, you can't you cannot discriminate. That that's what they're doing based on race. So discrimination has this negative term, right? So they would never call it positive discrimination. They call it affirmative action. Russell conjugation: you discriminate, I affirm. Yeah, <laughs> but they also um, it was also like bisexuals on board, right? Like it's also sexual orientation. Is that true, or did I? I, I actually don't know. Okay, so but but actually speaking of. Um, Orientation. Let's talk about the the web designer because that's another big one, right? And they're related because I want to get back to the kind of point to trap your your kind of progressive friend who's just getting beamed from the New York Times like what they should think. By the way, New York Times wrote an editorial, you know, kind of like totally on this affirmative action thing. Not one mention of Asian Americans in in their editorial. They cite all these other stats, but like they just conveniently leave out like the fact that like there's a group of people that so. Yeah, you know, don't get your opinions beamed to you from the New York Times. So, anyways, the the 303 Creative case is this web designer. Uh, she's religious. She said, "Hey, I don't want to support. Uh, I think gay marriages or or whatever to do websites." Okay, so one one interesting thing here: she didn't actually have a, a gay couple like this. So, this is another case in Colorado, by the way. So, it's it's based on this Colorado law that you can't discriminate. And so, the the Colorado law was about a cake shop. And that actually had, you know, a gay couple went and asked the guy to make a cake with two men on it. He said, no, for religious reasons. This is always weird. I'm not a lawyer. So like the, the, the way the case was brought was not correct in terms of being able to actually have this ruling. But this was a couple of years ago. And this was a 7-2 ruling, by the way. So it was um, Kagan, who's on the liberal side of things, agreed with this, is that basically the cake shop guy got just poorly, poorly treated by the Colorado judges or whatever, for basically making fun of him for being religious, which they were like, absolutely not. Like First Amendment says religious freedom. Like you cannot, you know, demean people for having religion in this country. It's like, it's, it's like one of the first things we, we guarantee under the constitution. So the case comes back with this other person. So in some ways, I think that this is probably a plant. Like you can actually read the history. It's like, they didn't, they originally filed the case and then they like got thrown out because it's like, no one actually asked you for a website. Like you're not even, I don't know, a good web designer. 
But then, so then they, they have like an email from someone who claims to be gay. And it like, turns out like the guy probably is not, but whatever the, the so case. So much of this is astroturfed or something. Yeah. It was at, at some point someone would have been, and, and you would have gotten to where this is. And so basically the, the reading of the law is, this was the first amendment reading is you can't force someone. And this is the same thing with the cake. So whether it's a website or a cake, that's, that's creative expression. So, so there's some like artistic component, like I'm putting some kind of love, you know, labor of love in terms of like making the representation of, of what I'm selling you. And the Supreme Court's like, no, that's first, that's, that's first men uh, protection, both in speech and religion here. So you can't force someone against their religion, which you have freedom of religion to, to, to basically speak. So this one's a little more interesting in the sense that like, I can see where you can make the argument on the slippery slope, right? Like, okay, well, what's to stop me from saying my religion says I don't want to support, you know, black and Latino or Muslims in my restaurant. Um, and that go back to a kind of a version of Jim Crow, right? And, and that very much was a, a reality in the South prior to the Civil Rights Act. I think you can get a little bit more specific. So there's kind of like a public accommodation, like a place that's meant to be like anyone can walk in and, and kind of purchase a service or do something that is kind of a commodity, right? Like when you go into a restaurant, they're not making something that special for you. It's, it's kind of like, okay, their menu's there, they're gonna serve you, great. Whereas I think we're, we're capable as humans to kind of say, okay, making a cake or making a website is, is a kind of a longer term engagement. There's uh, a lot more consultation back and forth. People are wanting it to be custom. But I can, I can see the argument on the other side that it's like, hey, that's not a very clean law. And it's like, we're just going to have a ton of lawsuits now on what creative expression is, right? Like, you're going to have a ton of religious people who basically are going to try to make everything ability to have it be, um, I don't want to serve, you know, gay people and then potentially race. Although race is interesting because race is specifically protected in the 14th Amendment. So, like, you, you start to get other, other um, kind of protections there. So, what, what I think is interesting, though, on this is... So you're going to have all the people tell you that like the, the, we have a fascist uh, Supreme Court and, um, you, you know, all these, these conservative justices are out to get gay people. When the reality is, if you go back just a couple of years, Bostock, no, none of the, none of the, uh, you know, progressives want to talk about this. It was, I think, a 7-2 case in favor of gay rights, including both Roberts and Gorsuch, who, if you go back and look at the tr nomination hearings for Trump, was the, you know, the various groups that were kind of like pro gay rights was like, this is the worst justice. He's going to just steamroll. And when he did this case, the 7-2 the ruling for, for Bostock around, I think you can't be fired for being gay. So it was kind of this, all of the conservatives were like, we got swindled, like Gorsuch. But the reality is he, he, he's, he's evaluating the law. Like, and, and so whether he does it more conservatively or more liberally, that's, you know, I think point of your point of view, but the, the reality is he's a jurist. And so like, it turns out that like actually a decent number of justices, I think Kagan's a great example on the, on the left side of the bench will go when the law is not, um, you know, properly done. And so specifically in this case, it's Colorado can't have a law that says you can't discriminate. So let's just go through a couple of things. So, so the first is, is, are there other web designers who might capitalize on the fact that like, I can now go after yeah, you know, part of the market because it's, it's being underserved because you have all these, you know, crazies who, who basically say, Hey, I don't, I don't want to do, do this. And I, crazy is the wrong word that, 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 that's their point of view. Here's the other thing. And this is what I kind of think is stupid about this case. And I actually think it's a culture war issue that's trying to be sold to both the right and left. Right. So first of all, there wasn't a client. So that's kind of stupid. Like that this person basically is a web designer. I don't even know how good she is, but the reality is that she just wanted to get a case to make a point. Um, so that I think is dumb. I think that the second thing is, 
you can just do a pocket veto, right? So even if this didn't exist, and I'm a really bigoted person, if I just don't say it's because of your race, and I come up with another plausible reason, like, so so I think part of this is just like, it's, it's just scoring points in the culture war and, and it like plays well on, on Twitter and like Chris Rufo is on this side and, and, you know, uh, who's the MSNBC guy, Chris Hayes is on this side. And it's just, you know, your team scores points and dunks and AOC is rallying people with her memes and we're going to fight this. And it's just like, okay, this is really stupid. Like, you know, there are some fundamental issues here that we should solve, but the reality is, is like both sides are just trying to use it to rile up their base. Which, which, by the way, I, I think actually from just like a strategic standpoint, I think a lot of these Supreme Court cases that are kind of like focusing on issues that are kind of already solved in society, like from a like they're, they're not, they're scoring points with some very hardcore set of conservative people. But the reality is it's, it's actually coming back to bite the Republicans, right? So it's like Dobbs last year, uh, I think, had an impact on the on the midterms, right? Like there was a chunk of, of swing voters who were like, yeah, I don't want to ban abortion. This is crazy. Now, my criticism on Dobbs is the the Democrats have had almost 50 years after uh, Roe v. Wade to, you know, enshrine in federal law an abortion law, which is completely constitutional for them to go do. And they didn't. And so (laughs) what, what they did is they used the threat of losing abortion based on this one court ruling as a fundraising tactic. So I think that from a cynical standpoint, that's that's completely inappropriate. Like if you really believe that this is important, like you fundamentally believe it, pass the law. And so I think this is going to be a big campaign issue for Biden next year is, he's not going to say this, but, but basically the vote, and this is kind of what happened with Trump in 2016 with a bunch of conservative people. It's hold your nose, vote for me, because we're then going to go, we're going to go fix the, the abortion thing. We're going to go, you do whatever. Now, whether or not that actually happens, it's a classic like, oh, we'll do that third after we spend, you know, spend more money or whatever. And then it's like, it never gets actually passed. Wesley Yang had a good tweet. He said, uh, critical race theory completed its long march through our cultural institutions in 2019. And the Federalist Society completed its long march through the federal courts in, in 2019. And people always talk about, or these people, you know, um, some people talk about the left winning all, 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 all the time. But the, the you know, the, the, the rights victory in the courts in the last um, few years, like, it's very possible that if Trump hadn't nominated three judges or, or whatever, like, we would have had very different outcomes, you know, on what we just saw with affirmative action and, and what we saw with Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Well, so one, for those who are unaware, you should go read up on the history of the Federalist Society. It's, it's I think, the most important American institution that most people don't know about in the sense that they, they had a, a plan in the 70s and they actually executed it over 50 years um, and is having pretty serious consequences in the sense that this... Unpack the plan quickly. Just to, to get really conservative justices uh, at every level, and if you if you stack the, the federal courts work in, in tiers, but if you have enough of them, then there's going to be a stable of federal judges who, who can actually make these rulings. One, the Supreme Court can't handle all that, so you can actually have a bunch of this stuff happen. And then two, it's it's really, really, you know, they got lucky with the, the Ginsburg and Scalia stuff. I mean, that's expert maneuvering by McConnell. And any, anyone who claims that that was somehow unfair... Chuck Schumer wrote it in the exact same thing. Like, it's just pure political gamemanship. I think both are pretty crafty in how they do things. Like, I think Schumer snuck the the Inflation Reduction Act by them, although that makes me think that McConnell might have actually wanted to have that happen. So, I, I don't know. Like, so, 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 so anyways, I, so going back to the Federalist stuff, the, the fact that the American judiciary now has, has definitely become more conservative. How conservative is I actually couldn't measure. I'm sure people have, but 
but now you have a 6-3 majority of conservatives. And, and, and Roberts basically is, is, is a traditional trend with most of the right-leaning justices. They move left over time. Kennedy moved left, Sandra Day, O'Connor, Roberts, because it also kind of makes them more interesting, right? They make the decisions. They, they get to kind of be in the spotlight. But, you know, you have Alito and, and Thomas, but then you've added now Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Gorsuch. Gorsuch, I think, moves a little bit more to the left sometimes. But the, I think what is interesting is there's another piece of history that I think most people don't appreciate. You might have read about it in high school is that FDR was ready to pack the court to make sure that he could get the New Deal and all of the associated programs through because originally it was going to be on his constitution. And that is a really interesting history. It's actually made me want to go back and read more of it. Um, uh, our favorite friend, Curtis, would would be able to talk about, uh, I don't know, favorite friend for Curtis, but... Uh, <laughs> Curtis loves talking about FDR, right? Like, and, and he basically says FDR is the most important person in American history outside of, you know, the founding fathers and maybe Abe Lincoln, like, like criminally understudied in terms of how he fundamentally transformed the way the American government worked. We win World War II and now we have this structure that, that has been put in place by FDR. So I actually feel undereducated on him. So it's, it's an area that I would like to get a little bit smarter, right? Like our entitlement programs, FDR, like it's like major, major um, changes to the way the federal government and a major expansion of the size of the federal government. But with uh, the packing of the court, that was a serious thing that would have potentially happened. And, I, and I, I suspect that if the Democrats get back to a majority in the House and have a little bit of wiggle room in the Senate, even if it's just one or two, maybe you get a seminar and mansion to, to keep the peace. But if they got one more, I think that they just steamroll through and they would just keep on rolling, like we're in a game where every time there's an election, they roll back a little bit of the filibuster so that you can get past the supermajority, you know, uh, filibuster in the Senate, which is a 60. And I think that they would um, take the opportunity to pack the court. So they would increase the number of justices under some argument that it should be increased as a result of like, I think that originally there were only nine. So they, they've increased it in the past, I'm pretty sure. And so they would kind of make, eh, it's time to update it. And then of course they would they would have the, the Democratic president just quickly put through a couple of um, Supreme Court nominations, which of course are now not subject to the filibuster. So I think it would be pretty interesting in the sense that this is maybe the last institution it's definitely political, but like in terms of it hasn't been truly captured in terms of the what I would call the rest of the administrative state. But like a change to the court makeup, given that you're appointed for life, um, would be pretty significant. Now, I think an interesting compromise would be 18 year terms. And then every president would get two appointments. Right. So you'd have nine justices every every two years. You roll one off. You would actually have fewer justices getting appointed when they're like 50, because like most people aren't even a judge until they're in their 40s. But so right now the game is get in as early as possible because you're there for life. And, and and what you'd get is you'd get a bunch of, which I actually think in the case of a judge, that's probably something where you want a little bit more wisdom, a little bit more time. But but you would get, um, I think, a group of people that would be constantly changing and be better reflecting both. A, the president would, it would be so much less contentious, like you would actually have two per presidential uh, term. And you know, every once in a while, someone would die and that would change it a little bit. But like, for the most part, there wouldn't be this kind of game where you're just trying to get people in there forever. Right. It's completely dysfunctional in that regard. Yeah. The, uh, I want to bring up this um, other book and explain it briefly um, that also helps explain um, some of the central tensions that we have here. 
um, related to affirmative action, and it's called The Age of Entitlement by, by Chris Caldwell. And he, I actually he, haven't read it. I know uh, we have some mutual friends who think it's great. Yeah, I'll, I'll explain some, some parts of it briefly. He, he basically says we have, we have two constitutions in, in our country. One is the official constitution, um, and that is really focused on individual rights. And then one is the unofficial constitution, which is you know, the Civil Rights of 1964, which focuses on group rights. And that these constitutions are are um, irreconcilable, uh, in, in conflict and, and irreconcilable. And, and he, he basically traces how the civil rights, you know, which started for black people, but you know, rapidly moved to encompass every other category of, of marginalized group, was sold on the basis of non-discrimination and equal opportunity, and then immediately turned into equal outcomes and affirmative action. The distinction, yes, between individual rights and group rights. People were always protected as individuals, but today they're protected as groups. And it's not clear how to determine which groups need government protection beyond individual rights and in what capacities. And um, you know, this this happened. You know, it started for black people, but then went to you know women and and um, gay people, and then trans people, and you can imagine you know more more groups um, emerging. And um, what what's interesting about this book is that he not just traces that that how this movement happened, but he said, it's not just the outcomes that are important, but it's also the process that changed. He, you know, quoting him here, he says, the Civil Rights Act became the mechanism through which to spread an entire social agenda that the American people did not vote for, did not agree to, or did not even particularly want in the moment. It served as a precedent for kind of an activist government in the years to follow. So power basically moved from Congress to, to the courts. And so activists could get things written into law that were unpopular and wouldn't be legislated otherwise. And so I think that book is another way of, of describing, you know, Richard Haney has a book that's upcoming that where he basically says that wokeness is just civil rights law, that it's not just something that is a, um, you know, kind of an emergent set of beliefs, but is also a kind of emergent set of legal um, infrastructure, legal tactics that, that enabled um, this, to, this to happen. So it's interesting you mentioned that because I actually think the most interesting thing that the Roberts court as currently comprised is attacking, which again, to bring up another Curtis thing, is the overreach of the administrative state, right? So you have these kind of big pieces of legislation and we don't do them that often. And so what ends up happening is the way to actually kind of make this happen is to use the bureaucracy in the government, right? Because if you think about like most executive branch agencies, you have a political appointee at the top, but the actual mechanism by which the bureaucracy runs, right, the people who stay on, depending if it's a Republican or a Democrat, they're kind of tenured, right? Like the civil service reform has effectively made it so that like federal employees have this amazing pension package and things that they just continue to work, right? It's like very rigorous, can't fire people, all this kind of stuff, which, by the way, hasn't been tested for the Supreme Court. And I can promise you if there is a Republican that's not Trump, because I think that a Republican that's not Trump in the presidency would be a little bit more targeted about how they'd go about this. And I think DeSantis has talked about this is he would, and he's a, a lawyer. So he, they would go after that ability for the executive branch. And this is another Curtis point is the executive branch by reading the constitution has full power over that. So there's no version where the president can't fire someone in the executive branch. Like that's just crazy law. Like to think that the Congress can say, oh no, like you have to go through this process. Like now the president is commander in chief and had full executive ability to fire anyone um, in the executive branch. But, but this, this thing that has come up, and it actually came up with the student debt, which is the, the third big case that's kind of popped up, is major questions doctrine. And I'm particularly excited about this. And let me explain it, um, because it, it potentially applies to crypto. Uh, so you know, my own bags. 
But I think the, the basic thing is, so there was a case actually a couple of years ago where the EPA under Obama basically took the Clean Air Act, a pretty uh, landmark piece of legislation that was focused on air pollution. And I think it's from the 70s. Air pollution is like the stuff that goes into your lungs and like, you know, makes you sick and all that kind of stuff. The, the executive branch interpretation was, oh, well, we can use this, this act and some like, you know, specific clauses to regulate uh, greenhouse gas emissions and specifically limit coal and, and uh, natural gas stuff. And this is, so of course, West Virginia is the one that sues, goes to the Roberts court, and then they kind of strike it down. They say, no, 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 like this is way overreach outside of the statute, the con- Congress, Congress passed. And you, you're just like kind of inventing new powers. You're not able to do this. In addition, there's this kind of concept of the major questions doctrine, which if Congress is actually debating this or or thinking about legislation on how to do stuff, you bureaucrat, you're not allowed to go like legislate from your regulatory agency. You actually need to get your power given to you by Congress, right? Accountable to the people. And so this is what happened with um, the student debt thing. So do do you know what law that Biden tried to get rid of the student debt under? The HEROES Act. You know what the HEROES Act is? It was passed after 9-11. And basically, it's supposed to create this emergency power. So it's just completely ridiculous. Like, it should have just expired in terms of it. But now, Biden was trying to use this as some national emergency related to COVID that now he could just forgive the debt. Well, the Supreme Court said, absolutely not. And you can't do this. So now, you know, AOC and Biden say they're going to try to use the Education Act of 1965 to do the same thing. Well, they're going to probably strike it down again and just basically say, no, this is you need to get Congress. If you want something done, you can't just write it with your pen like our system of government requires you to get Congress to pass a law. And so what's interesting is Coinbase has this big uh, lawsuit with the SEC. And uh, we can get into that in a different episode. But but what was interesting is Coinbase responded to the SEC lawsuit in a very short period of time, right? They still had like 40 days or something to respond. And, and the argument that they're making, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I kind of play one on Twitter in terms of I, I, read, I read these threads. And I think the, the thing that they bring up is that, hey, Congress is actually talking about crypto legislation. It's, a, it's actually like being debated in the House and in the Senate. And these new assets are sufficiently different in terms of their characteristics than the original intent of the, you know, the Securities Act of whatever, 1932 or 1940. And we, we think that like this shouldn't be able to, like the SEC shouldn't be able to just exert additional power. There's some fundamental questions of whether they're securities or commodities, which is a different regulator. And Congress is already talking about this, like let, let's hold off till, till Congress does something. I, I don't know how much merit that, that that's going to have in terms of like that specific case. But, but what it is interesting is the the quote administrative state, which I think had continued to grow for a very long period of time, is actually now starting to have its power curtailed by the court. And I think this is a really positive development because it actually forces Congress to pass laws and update laws and actually do the work of finding whether it's bipartisan or if you are in the case of a newly elected president and you have a majority, use your political capital, right? And sometimes that doesn't work, right? So, so good example, Trump, the, all these Republicans spent all this time under Obama. We're going to repeal Obamacare. Paul Ryan, they had like, you know, voted 100 times or something to get rid of Obamacare. Trump gets an office. They finally caught the car. They weren't able to convince enough Republicans to vote against Obamacare because it was all political posturing. And the reality is actually a lot of these Republicans, especially from the South, disproportionately benefit because a lot of these people are on disability. And so it would have been politically unpopular. And so 
I think forcing Congress to take action and a lack of action should be held accountable by voters. And so my, my, my optimistic thing is that this major questions doctrine is going to apply to a bunch of these regulatory agencies. And instead of having everything be these executive orders where the public administration comes in and you have all these, these kind of things that Trump did and then everyone gets mad and then you have Biden come in and he immediately negates all of those and then he flips over to uh, his set of policies and then the other side gets mad, I think you, you should get to a point where Congress has to do the work. And, and I think that is, outside of the cultural issues, I, the thing I'm most excited about this court is that they're actually saying, no, like this law does not give you some broad set of additional powers. Like you need to actually go to get Congress to say, hey, like we think that uh, climate uh, related stuff, so specifically carbon emissions should should be regulated by the EPA. Here's the power. Like that's what Congress can do. And so um, I don't know, I, I, I'm optimistic in that regard, but I also think that there's a decent chance that the court gets stacked and then it just becomes kind of a farce. In the, in the same way that companies often will do like a meeting refresh of like, hey, let's get rid of all standing meetings and then kind of, you know, um, see which ones we still need. It's kind of a silly analogy, but you could imagine, and this goes back to the FDR thing, like uh, on a government regulation level, like, hey, let's kind of like, you know, there's a ton of slack that's, you know, been accumulated over the past century or past many decades in, in many of these organizations. Let's kind of like reset some of them so that we can, uh, you know, redesign them for, you know, tw 21st century or, or take out all of the, the slack or um, kind of pulp or, you know, pork or whatever that, that's built up. Um, and, and I guess this is the, the dream for an FDR-like person is he can come in and just kind of, um, you know, start, start some of these anew. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think you need the, the like online phrase mandate of heaven, like in terms of you need to come in, it, you need to be kind of a Trump, but like not as polarizing in the sense that you, you're mega populist. You actually got a bunch of people on the middle. Like it's, it's not like a 50, 49 election and you won the electoral college. It's got to be a, it's got to be like what Ron DeSantis actually did in, in Florida and where it's like 60, 40, right? Like, so a, a, a clear, like, Reagan, Reagan, I think, had like a, a like a actual wave type victory. So they they do happen every once in a while. And I think like I'm pretty sure FDRs or you know some maybe his reelections. And you you basically have the kind of like will of the people. And if you don't get on board as a congressperson, whether you're on one side of the aisle or not, like you're going to get wiped out. Like in terms of you're going to get primaried and, and someone is going to be you. And so I think that would be required, which I, I think is going to be pretty hard. At this point, since the, the country is so polarized, and I think realistically, th th well, I don't know if it's realistic. I, I think that the single best practical thing you could do is just term limit all Congress people. You just basically you can you can run. I think House should be elected to a little bit longer term. I think it should be a four year term. I think the Senate should be eight, and I think maybe you can run for reelection once. Um, and then basically you have a lot more blood moving through the system and it, it better, better updates, right? Like, I, I think like being a career congressperson is not good for the country. Like it, it just turns into what's going to get me elected. And you play this game where if you're in a safe seat, what you do is you spend time raising money for other people in your party versus actually focusing on kind of doing service for your, your jurisdiction and then, and then moving on. I actually don't think the president should be able to be reelected. I think it should be a six-year term. Like president then actually takes a lot more shot because the problem with the first four years is they basically uh, they are they don't want to go too too uh, aggressive because they have to get reelected. And, and so maybe that's an argument to saying that you should have that. But 
I think like having a president who has a six year term and they can kind of say, okay, and, and you still have midterm elections. And, and yeah, I, I think getting rid of career politicians is, is probably the best thing we can do at the federal level. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I, I want to um, segue back to the affirmative action thing because I, I want to steel man the case for affirmative action because, you know, we, we were just talking about, hey, it's not fair that an Asian person um, based on the color of their skin, you know, can't get into the university when they deserve to get into the university. At the, at the same time, I think there's an argument that says, hey, it's not fair that uh, a black person, let's say who's a descendant of, of slavery, um, grows up in an environment where they're at a disadvantage because of the color of their skin. Not maybe legally, but well, I guess legally, historically, right? Because they, they were legally deemed slaves. And so how do we reconcile that, that there are two things that are not fair, right? And so why should the Asian person get sort of an equal chance when the, the black person does not? That, that something like that is, is somewhat of the, of the logic behind some of the affirmative action. How, how do we how do we address that, that logic? I think it's a fallacy because you're you're lumping in a group of people's experience in, in kind of like one category and you're taking maybe like the worst case and then you're applying it to a group of people based on skin color. And I think let's let's steel man the opposite side, just like I, I don't even know if I can steel man that because I, I just fundamentally disagree with it. What happens if, you're, if your um, family was mostly killed in the Cultural Revolution, you escaped China, or your family was one of the kind of boat people coming from Vietnam, or you escaped Cambodia, the killing fields of Cambodia? Like, what, like what are we, we having a competition in terms of uh, adversity? Like, what happens if you're a Holocaust survivor? Like, that seems pretty, pretty aggressive. And, and like Jewish people have traditionally pretty discriminated against. So like, are we basically saying up? Oh, nope, sorry, because you're you know, your ancestor, even if they were in a Holocaust uh, camp, came to the U.S. And, and was able to be successful. Therefore, you're not deserving of that bump. Whereas I've been in the U.S., you know, my family's been in the U.S. for a long time, descendant of slavers. But like, I haven't had any any major adversity in my life from a like Holocaust level. Like, I mean, like, what, what, what are we comparing? So, so you're saying that there's some like um, ancestral thing that like, it's like crippling to you. Well, then how do you explain like successful, a successful people today, right? If, if things are so crushing, how do you explain successful, you know, Nigerians, Jamaicans, Haitians, people who have the same skin color who come to the U.S. And so like, I, I, I and, and, and in some cases coming from places where slavery was also there. And right, like, I think anyone coming from Haiti today that's a pretty tough place to be and like take the worst place in the US and I would say Haiti is probably still worse. It basically, it says it, this philosophy of my problem, my suffering, my circumstances are worse than yours and therefore I deserve it. Like it, it is a game the government is never going to be able to be good at. Well, they're trying, right? The adversity score. And it good. hasn't worked. Yeah. But l l I guess what I'm wondering is, would you even debate the premise? Like if you could figure out I guess when, when you say it hasn't worked, meaning it hasn't pulled people what, up. What look at California? We have the we have a control, and we have uh, like the the experimental thing. You increase graduation rates in STEM. Like, what, what do you what do you want? Like, you just want to feel good that like you you got you know this like United Nations postcard of your student body. That's not what people actually want. People want to to succeed in life. They wanna they wanna graduate. They don't want to like go to an elite university and then not do as well. Like I like that that they don't want to feel be felt sorry for. Like I, I don't know anyone who would who would want that. The pernicious thing is 
it, it also creates this thing that, oh, you can't succeed unless I help you. That's BS. There are plenty of people who, who don't get that help for come from tough circumstances or things who are able to succeed. And I, I think we, we should as a society be saying success comes from within and it comes from within your family. And we're going to do things to help, like put you in a position, right? Like making sure a kid has lunch at school. That seems like a pretty good program right? Because the kid didn't get to decide if their parents are responsible enough to send them for lunch, right? And we know that has an impact on uh, educational attainment is like, you're not hungry. Like that, that, that is like a good, like there are a lot of smart things that we can actually be doing to encourage, give people more of an equal playing field, but fundamentally the world is never going to be equal. And no matter how much the government tries to do it, it's not going to work. And anytime you try to keep weighing your finger on the scale and just a little bit or this or there, it is a path to socialism, which turns into communism, which turns into killing people because that's the way it works. And like, I think if you, if you start from a life isn't fair and what we're going to try to do is give people as much of a, a kind of opportunity to succeed, but they have to be the one that actually does it. Not We're, we're not going to pull you along in life and then get you somehow to succeed. And I think that, that that's fundamentally what affirmative action is, is we're going to just save a slot at every step along the way, even if you, if you don't qualify for it. So you don't think, even if you could come up with an adversity score, um, and it was, it was proven which group had had the most adversity, that we shouldn't kind of re-engineer society or, or take into account that unique adversity, and thus kind of every new generation is a, is a clean slate. At, at of- what point does it stop? How do you measure the, the end of the adversity? Once there's equity, of course. Right. But there's never going to be equity because that's the way the world works. So outside of getting rid of capitalism and moving to communism, you cannot have equity, right? You cannot affirmative action your way into having underrepresented minorities somehow have the most valuable startups in the country. Here's another example. Here's another example. Does the NBA have any affirmative action? <laughs> no. But... Does anyone have any problem with that? <laughs> no. Does, does the entertainment have any affirmative action? No. I think a little, like in terms of, I think the, oh, the yeah, like, top Oscars <laughs> Movies, and some yeah. of the other stuff. But the reality is, is that like in in most of those professions, the the most popular artists are the ones that like are great, and plenty of them are are African American, disproportionate as a percentage of the population, right? And so, like that is that's the the when you actually treat people with merit in certain industries, all these minority groups do pretty well. Um, and then when you try to start mucking with it, you actually just create these outcomes that are like, they, they don't, they don't play out. And, 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 and so it's, it's mood affiliation, it's, it's inputs over outputs and, and, you know, California, California is 25 years of this, like the, the most progressive state in the country does not have affirmative action and has an increase in, in, uh, minority graduates, graduates also in STEM QED. Like you, you cannot argue with that other than what you want to exist in the world versus what is the actual thing to increase the output. Agnes Callard is a philosopher who has this quote. She basically says, you know, how do we reconcile egalitarianism and meritocracy? And she has a quote, she says, there's a philosophical conundrum at the root of all of this. Morality requires we maintain a safety net at the bottom that catches everyone. Alternative is simply inhumane, but we also need an aspirational target at the top. So as to inspire us to excellence, creativity, and accomplishment. In other words, we need worth to come for free, and we need worth to also be acquirable. And no philosopher, not Kant, not Nietzsche, Aristotle, has yet figured out how to construct a moral theory that allows us to say both of those things. I think we have to unpack that. That's a lot for me to think through. I actually haven't read anything by her, so I don't yeah. know. Um, 
we we can, we can wrap on that. Any uh, any other last thoughts you have? I think I think all the Supreme Court stuff though is actually culture war stuff packaged to you by the media. Like a lot of it doesn't actually like impact as much, but it's used to sell you a product which the politicians like because it ultimately gets you to donate one way or the other. And so I think like people people way over rotate in the near term just makes them feel really upset, and then it kind of fades and you know. There are activists everywhere, and they're, they're going to get the loss change one way or another. And, and right now, it's a little bit more conservative. I can promise you in our lifetime, it's going to veer back on, on the more progressive side. Yeah, uh, it's a great place to, to wrap. It's been a great discussion. Uh, thanks as always, bud. See you next week. Later. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.